folks. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of TGC Midweek. Jacob and Michael back with you on the pod, continuing our trek through the Bible. Mr. Novak, what's going on, man? Not a whole lot. Can't complain. Normal right. week. Doing, That's doing, right, doing yeah. well. Normal week. Yep. Monday recording this week. So a Monday recording. Beginning of the week. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. A busy week, so had to get it in Monday night. We had other things going on this week. Yeah. In the evenings. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, uh, I'm certainly excited to dive into this next uh, little section of our our Bible series. But um, before but we do, I got the boost and bummer. Yep. So let's let's talk about this. So you know what's boosting me these days? I I sound am like I'm dying just, to find out. I sound like I just segue to a prescription <laughs> drug ad or something. Yes. <laughs> TGC Midweek brought to you by Lipitor. Um, all right. So what's giving me a big boost? I'm sure that this will appeal. I'm hoping that this will appeal to at least. 0.1% of our audience. <laughs> um, as folks may know, I'm a big hockey fan. Oh, no. So there goes. Yeah, That's strike one. If you listen closely, you can hear everyone turning off yes. the pod. Um, but my Dallas Stars are in the conference final hey. right now. And if they win tonight, they will they will advance to the Stanley Cup finals. So I'm, I'm pretty jazzed about that. Wow. Talk about a sacrifice, you being here. I know. I know. We have simulated fire on the TV to our right instead of <laughs> instead of the game, which is probably good because I'd be pretty distracted. Yeah. Although they were playing pretty poorly when I when I left. So if the game on. was on right now, you would just ask a question and let me talk for <laughs> That's right. twenty five minutes in the middle. Like, hey, All right, you... we'll wrap it up with that. There's a talking donkey, Michael. What do you think about that? <laughs> Proceed. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, so that's that's what's uh, kind of getting me through these these last couple of days and something I'm boosting. Um, you know, what's a major bummer though. I I want to hear that. Too. We are getting into fall time. Uh, that's at least, a great thing. as they say, it's still 90 degrees outside. Um, with fall time comes, um, is, with fall time comes something that a lot of people love, which I just generally don't like, and that's and that's um, sweaters. No pumpkin spiced stuff. <laughs> I know it's a little bit cliche to to, to kind of schmear on it, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah. And it's not because I dislike traditional kitchen spices used to make pumpkin pie. Pumpkin pie is terrific. Yeah. I dislike the artificial pumpkin flavoring that's put into coffee, etc. Yeah. Because it has this underlying flavor of vomit that I just uh, do not well, like. I'll probably think about that next time. <laughs> I have a pumpkin spiced anything. I would. I, I read this somewhere. Recently, and I uh, a hearty amen to it. Um, I think we should sub apple cider for Ooh, pumpkin spice. I like that superior fall flavor. Profile. I agree. I would agree with that. Yep. Um, do you like pumpkin beer? You know, uh, most of the time, no. Mm -hmm. However, St. Arnold, which is a brewery in Houston, yep. does a beer called Pumpkinator, uh, mm. which I do like because wow. it's a lot of pumpkin beers are like drinking a bowl of pulpery, um, <laughs> but Pumpkinator is just like a good stout beer. With just this this hint of like pumpkin and cinnamon and nutmeg on the end, it's just like a little. My goodness, we could have a beer podcast next if this doesn't work out. <laughs> Don't tempt me with a good time. I'm man. tasting motor oil in my motor beer. Oil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, tasting yeah. a hint of nutmeg along with the motor oil. <laughs> that, that'll be our next news segment: is uh, TGC midweek tasting notes. <laughs> Well, well, when you when you uh, went into the advertisement just a minute ago, it made me think you were going to say, and to get 20% off, enter Jacob in the, <laughs> in, the, in the promo code line. That's right. That's right. Jacob 20. Here's our affiliate link. Yes. Um, but let's give the people what they want. Today, we're talking about numbers and Deuteronomy. Yep. 
Uh, we're going to do a twofer. We did 40 minutes on Leviticus, and if folks weren't asleep, we're going to continue that with Numbers Wake and up. Deuteronomy. Yeah. <laughs> Some people might just be waking up. <laughs> but this will round out the Pentateuch for us. We're going to do the last two books tonight. Um, so Numbers, three broad sections. Folks might not, um, I guess, readily pick this up if you're just reading through Numbers, but it's really three broad sections. Do you want to give us an overview of those? Yeah, I think it'd be helpful if you're ever reading the book of Numbers to know the three sections that you're looking for. The first section is found in chapters 1 through 10, and Israel is still there camped out at Mount Sinai uh, where they had received the law of the Lord and before they get on their way. And remember, um, they were supposed to be moving straight to the promised land of Canaan so that they could enter into it um, and make it their home. And so before they move to the promised land, what happens is Moses takes a census. Uh, and this is a census of Israel's warriors. Um, every male 20, uh, age 20 or above, I believe, is, is how the census would have been taken. Um, and it really foreshadows what's about to take place, that Israel uh, is about to go and, uh, to the promised land um, and begin their conquest of this land that God had promised to their forefathers. And so that's the first section that you see in Numbers. The second section uh, lasts from chapters 10 to about 25. And there uh, you see uh, basically Israel grumbling a lot. Um, they're on their way to the promised land. Uh, there's a point uh, in uh, Numbers 13 and 14 where they actually send spies into the promised land to scout it out, and they come back um, and give a, a report that scares the people. And instead of trusting in God's promises and trusting in His care and provision to go with them into the promised land, they decide not to, which God punishes them for. And he punishes them by saying, for the next 40 years, for the next generation, this generation will not enter the land that I promised them. And so that really sets into um, into uh, um, play just a, a number of different times that you see um, grumblings beginning uh, in Israel. And the third section really happens... Um, after uh, that first generation passes away, chapters 26 to 36. Um, and, and the main thing about that section um, is the fact that uh, you get um, another census happening, mirroring the census that happened in chapter one of the book, um, but with a new generation. Um, and so it's a very hopeful end to numbers um, as the Lord's people prepare to move in to uh, conquer the promised land that God had wanted to give them from the very beginning. So this idea of a generation passing away, I get a little bit confused because Moses is writing this book. Um, and if he's recording a series of events, he must be writing it then when he's, he's quite old. But an entire generation passes away. So are we to assume that Moses is exceptionally long lived? Um, or should we understand generation differently? Yeah, I think, we, I think we'd understand that Moses is exceptionally long-lived on one hand. He probably lived longer than most people mm -hmm. in that day and age. Um, I don't know how old Moses was when he died. Off the top of my head, I don't know if it tells us in sure. the Bible. Um, but I've always gotten the sense just by the amount uh, that he was writing, the fact that he didn't even move uh, to uh, bring God's people out of Egypt until he was 40 years old. Mm. And then if you add another 40 years of desert wanderings, um, that puts him in the neighborhood of 80 to 85 mm -hmm. years old at his death. 
And so if you do the math there, um, he lived a very long time, but a generation was generally 40 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And so God was punishing um, a generation, uh, but that does not mean that some folks in that generation, some individuals did not live to see the promised land. It was more of a general judgment on the entire nation of 40 years Mm -hmm. um, that would have been considered a generation. I think you can probably think of it too, especially in the context of numbers as... um, wandering in the wilderness until one cohort of fighting men has uh, exceeded the age at which it is appropriate for them to bear arms and waiting for basically another group to rise up and take their place in order to uh, participate in the military campaign that's about to happen. Sure. Yep. And and the men that refuse to enter the first time just aren't going to reap the benefits or the rewards Mm -hmm. of, uh, of the land that God had promised them. And so that was a very real, um, that was a very real punishment for that generation. Sure. Yeah, this theme of of Israel's constant failure to live up to God's standards and yet God's covenant faithfulness um, in spite of that is something that happens time and time again, I think, throughout Numbers. You constantly see the Israelites um, having just horrible instances of lack of faith, um, but this theme of the land promise is something that's going to carry them through You know all the stuff that happens in Numbers ultimately to the Canaanite conquest. Yeah, and you remember the land promise goes back to Abraham uh, where he's called into Canaan at that point, and God says, look around. Mm -hmm. All of this land that you see will one day be yours and and your generations uh, before you will inherit this or after you will inherit this land. And so that's really one of the main themes of Numbers is this promised land of Canaan that God was going to give his people. And the whole point of it was they were supposed to set up shop in Canaan so that they could get about the work of blessing the entire world, so that they could get about the work of what the Old Testament often says, being a light to the nations. Mm -hmm. Um, It was a home base for them. Um, but we'll see as we continue in our series looking at the scriptures that um, it, it did not become that home base that God had always intended it to be. What would that mean to bless the nations or be a light to the nations? Um, to basically uh, tell them to show them who the true God mm-hmm. of this world and universe is, um, to bring them into covenant relationship with him even. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, we would say that we're experiencing the blessing of the nations now through the through the work and activity of the church. I was about to say, that sounds very familiar. <laughs> yeah. And so um, we are doing that as God's people now, attempting to bring blessing to the whole world mm-hmm. um, because of what he's done for us. We are blessed to be a blessing um, yeah. is a way to think about it. One of the things I think is important to remember uh, when we talk about these this land promise is that um, – God's faithfulness to secure the land for Israel is because of his promise that he made to Abraham. Mm-hmm. And it's not as a part of a deal that he strikes with with Israel because obviously Israel fails basically as soon as they say they're going to do it, they turn around and fail. So a lot of times folks will see the Mosaic Covenant and the sort of conditionality that, that sort of uh, sounds like is wrapped up in that. Um but really the land promise is tied to Abraham. Mm-hmm. The other thing I want to bring up with land, and we didn't talk about this in the in the pre-record, so um, you know, we can fight later or whatever. But um when we talk about land promises. I would probably lose that fight. <laughs> <laughs> I, I do probably outweigh you Jacob's by more big, than I care boy. to admit. Um when we talk about uh, I'm scrappy land- though. <laughs> <laughs> Street rules. Yeah. yeah. Um when we when we talk about land promise, uh, there's a lot of folks today that want to see that promise of geopolitical Israel 
as still uh, in play and mm-hmm. folks that will look for sort of a theocratic Israel to return to the physical place of, you know, yep. Palestine, Canaan, whatever we want to call it. So yep. when we talk about land promise, I, I start to feel a little bit weird because I think of some of the weird, I, I guess, just, um, I don't know, there's some, there's some niche stuff that comes on with that. Sure. So your thoughts. Well, I've got a few thoughts on that. Uh, the first is that um, God was meant to dwell in the land. Um, that was always the intention. And so uh, when Israel moved into the land, the, one of the first things you see them doing um, or thinking about is building a home for the Lord. And the temple was always an important um, structure there in the land. But now uh, with Pentecost having happened and the Holy Spirit, God himself coming to live inside of us, mm-hmm. we are the temples that have been dispersed throughout the entire world. Um, and so no longer uh, would we think, at least in the Reformed tradition or the Presbyterian Reformed tradition, think about there being any real tie to the nation state of Israel today mm-hmm. um, to what we would be looking for God doing in our lives and in the future. Yeah. Um, in, in fact, anytime you see um, Israel, uh, it, we sing it in a song at church or we read about it in the New Testament, you could replace it with the word church. Mm. It's pretty synonymous um, is how we would think about this covenantally. And so um, you do still have some churches, dispensational churches, um, that think that there's still a plan for the modern nation state of Israel. Mm-hmm. And uh, the covenantal reform view would come along and say, that's just not the case. Yeah. Um, the whole world is ours now, mm-hmm. and God has intentions for the ends of the earth. And and we're experiencing those intentions even now as we live in, you know, all six livable continents mm-hmm. uh, of the world. Um, God's presence is there because yeah. there's Christians on every one, including Antarctica. We talked about that in the past. <laughs> there's got to be some researchers in Antarctica yeah. uh, that are believers. Um, sure. So that's it. And the land promise, too. I mean— you tell me if I'm wrong, but it it was fulfilled. Like Israel took the land and reigned in the land and had a for a short period of time a pretty a, a thriving theocracy there in the land. Um, yep. You know, a lot of the stuff that you read about in the prophets, they're coming to to sort of prosecute God's covenant claims against theocratic Israel in how they've abused their land uh, grant, so mm-hmm. to speak. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I've always just struggled with that when people say, well, God's promised to give Israel land. It's like, well, well, he did it, and then Israel gave it up. Yes, and uh, and he did it, and they experienced some prosperity there, too, mm-hmm. with David and then Solomon, which was probably the extent mm-hmm. of the kingdom stretching as far as it was going to stretch. Um, but if you look at the back of your Bible, you'll see maps, uh, potentially, depending on the Bible you have, of David's kingdom and then Solomon's kingdom, and it stretches uh, – um, it's it's fairly vast mm-hmm. um, there in in that in that uh, landmass. So it was definitely fulfilled um, there in the Old Testament. This promise of land. That's right. Um, so I I don't know if if there's any other themes you want to hit on in Numbers. One of the things that sticks out to me are we talked about this in Leviticus too, but it's just the number of Christ symbols that you see sort of sprinkled throughout here, and this is one of the places where. Um, you know, we're not trying to shoehorn Jesus somewhere that he's that he's not, but we're also reading scripture in light of scripture. So we're reading Numbers and Leviticus in light of what we know in the New Testament. And when when you do that, you start to see all these 
really amazing symbols of the Christ figure pictured there in in Numbers. The the three that stick out to me, and and you tell me which ones you want to talk about, are uh, the red heifer, who is a sacrificial animal that's killed in ashes. Its ashes are it's burned, and its ashes are put in water mm-hmm. and sprinkled on a person to make them clean. Um, the water from the rock, so the Israelites are are grumbling and they're thirsty and dying, and um, and in uh, just a great scene, uh, Moses takes his stick and smacks a rock, and water comes out of it. And so you think of immediately from there, you think of Jesus being the fountain of life, and you think of him being struck on the cross and water coming out of his side. And um, the third one is the bronze serpent, where. Um, I'll read the account of this mm-hmm. one because I think it's a little bit interesting. It almost sounds, I don't know, when I read it, it almost sounds a little bit comical. And I, I want to get your thoughts here. Um, okay, so I'm going to read in Numbers 21, starting in verse 4. From Mount Hor, they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. And the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food, no water. And we loathe this worthless food. When the Lord, then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the mm. people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent. And set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. Hmm. And just as an aside, uh, this is probably, I think, where you get the EMT logo of the little snake wrapped around yeah. a pole. Yep. Because there are yeah. people healing people. It's that a makes sense. Wrapped around a pole. Anyway, sure. Your thoughts. Yeah. Trivium aside. <laughs> well, you know, uh, I think that you got to keep a few things in mind when you read that passage. First is that the snakes were punishment. Um, and if you were bitten by uh, uh, one of the snakes, you were uh, meant to look at uh, a snake and be healed. And it's interesting that in John chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, Jesus actually references this story. And he says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, mm. that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. And so, obviously, as we've talked about in the past, God's people didn't look at the serpent and think, Jesus. They looked at the serpent and thought, I need to look at the serpent because mm-hmm. by looking at the serpent, I'll be healed from my punishment um, or from the consequences of my punishment. And Jesus comes and he basically interprets that uh, that part of Israel's history to say, um, if you look at me, um, I'm going to become sin. Mm-hmm. I'm going to become punishment so that if you look at me, you might be healed of your sin. Yeah. Um, and so, um, you know, it would have been a little bit mysterious. Um, like you said, it even feels a little bit um, like pagan worship in some ways um, to, to look at a bronze serpent. Um, but it's a foreshadowing uh, of Jesus mm-hmm. um, in the Holy Spirit's mind, who was one of the authors mm-hmm. of Numbers alongside Moses. And we think about it as a dark room in the Old Testament. And then when we get to the New Testament and hear things like Jesus in John chapter 3 liken himself to the bronze serpent, it's like the, the, um, the lights have been switched on and we can actually see and appreciate mm-hmm. that Numbers passage for what it was really meant to be. This is why we talk about Jesus is in all of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. It all points to him. Um, and so he comes and he basically um, ties his life, death, 
uh, and our forgiveness to that story that we find back in Numbers. Yeah, it, it does sound a little bit pagan. And in fact, in 2 Kings 18, this object does actually become the object of idolatrous worship. So Israel gets this terrific symbol of healing and then uh, turns around and, and starts work, uh, worshiping it uh, many generations later. Yeah. Um, but the thing about this that, that I think you can miss is you, they were bitten by a snake and they looked upon a snake mm-hmm. for healing. And so the note that's here in my Bible that I, I think is helpful says that um, in the same way, Christ was born as one in the likeness of sinful flesh. Mm-hmm. So he came to save us from our sinful flesh and as such was born in the likeness of of one of us. He looked just like a regular guy. Yep. Yep. So, yeah. Um, it's a beautiful story. That's, that's a story that'll preach. Mm. Um, especially when you read John chapter three and realize what Jesus has done. I mean, that's one that's very clear, um, from the old Testament where you can preach, uh, Christ's forgiveness and his death on a cross. Mm -hmm. Um, other themes that you see Michael in numbers, you know, I think we've touched mo- most on all of them. The, the thing that I, I would highlight, if you read Numbers, just look out for Israel's sinfulness, how mm-hmm. quickly they turn away from the Lord. It's important to understand they were hungry, they were thirsty, they were traveling through a desert, um, but that doesn't excuse their behavior. But it is at least important to recognize. And the other thing that I find interesting as I read Numbers is how um, uh, how ready God's people are uh, to basically rebel against the leaders that God has placed mm-hmm, in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, you see Moses on the hot seat time and time again uh, in the book of Numbers. Um, people just didn't like uh, yeah. where he was trying to take them. Um, and, you know, Moses is an example of Jesus in mm-hmm. some ways, or Jesus is the better Moses. Um, and sometimes we don't like where Jesus wants to take us. Mm. It requires some suffering um, and and some grumbling on our part. So that's a, that's a that's a neat theme to think through. One other thing before we leave numbers, because I teased it in one of the intro things. Um, there's a talking donkey. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> what's this all about? Disney made a lot of money off this. It was <laughs> was it Disney or Universal Shrek, oh, the talking man. donkey? Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'm thinking of. Um, yeah, and so uh, there you've got the story of Balaam's donkey, um, and. Uh, and and the story goes um, that uh, was Balaam. He was Balaam was sent. Can you describe the story? He yeah. Was so sent to, I think he was he was summoned by a, a king of another place to Balak. Yeah, Balak. Yep. He's summoned by Balak to basically prophesy curse. a curse on yes, Israel. Yes, that's right. And uh, and on his way, he didn't want to go do it. Uh-huh. Right. And so um, the donkey basically turned aside. Um, and uh, or maybe the donkey didn't want to go is how the story went. So the donkey wasn't doing what Balaam wanted it to do um, because the Lord was actually trying to stop it from happening. Mm. And uh, and so you have Balaam basically whipping his his oh, donkey yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, to say, "Come on, buddy, we got to get to where we're going." And then uh, and then the donkey basically talks. And you have the passage there. You could I, even I read. The, you can read the says, donkey's words. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, "What have I done to you that you've struck me these three times?" <clears throat> and Balaam said to the donkey, "Because you have made made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you." And the donkey said to Balaam, "Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way?" And he said, "No." Yeah. <laughs> so, Very matter of what, fact. What the heck? <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
And uh, if the, if the Lord can use a donkey to speak truth there in some ways, He can mm-hmm. use anything. And so, uh, you know, this is neither here nor there, but I'm a part of a little pastoral cohort. And uh, it's me and eight other ministers in our denomination, and we get together once a year for a little bit of a retreat, and we communicate through the year. You know what our cohort is called? Oh, man. Um, it is called uh, the uh, the Order of Balaam's Ass. <laughs> because <laughs> because God can talk through a bunch of asses. <laughs> a bunch of donkeys. If yeah. he can use a donkey, he can use us. That's great. That's That's what we think. The note here, I think, is helpful. It says the story of Balaam abounds in comic irony. The donkey was able to see the path better than the diviner and then tell him about it. Yeah. So, because um, then Balaam turns around and actually prophesies blessing to, to Israel. Yes. Because so. he can't, I mean, the Lord keeps him from pronouncing mm-hmm. um, curses, which makes the Balak, the king, very upset. Right. So, right. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's leave numbers now. Let's go to Deuteronomy. Um, a lot of repetition here, stuff we've seen before. Um, in fact, I'm going to get the exact details wrong, but I think the, the word Deuteronomy comes from the Greek word for like second law or something yep, like that, it repetition does. of the law. Yep. Yeah, and most of the chapters actually are the book names that you see in your English Bible come from the uh, Greek um, translation of the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so second law um, and uh, Deuteronomy, it's just a set of sermons, four different speeches from Moses to the Israelites right before they're about to enter the promised land together. And so you see lots of persuasion. You see Moses using emotive elements. You see repetition in the book of Deuteronomy because he wants to get his point across. You see rhetorical questions asked of Israel. Uh, and you see an attempt by Moses to really elicit a response from Israel. He wants them to go and obey God's law as they enter the promised land. It's it's basically like the the pregame speech. Mm. We're about to enter in, boys. Um, let's uh, let's gird up our loins and and get about obeying the Lord with yeah. the law that He gave us. And so, the position of the second generation is really similar to um, the position of the first generation that received God's law but also similar to our position as God's people, we're now a part of the story of God. And so we receive the law as well. Um, It's not the second giving of the law for us. It might be the, you know, 1200th giving of the law Mm -hmm. that we have heard. Um, But, um, but basically speeches from Moses to get them ready um, to obey the Lord in the promised land. It's also a nice kind of summary of a lot of things. Like there's a lot of the law that's just sort of packed in and condensed, I think. Um, I've, I've found Deuteronomy helpful in that it, it flows a little bit better than Leviticus, but you still kind of get the gist of a lot uh, of it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, you see the 10 commandments again do, in Deuteronomy. Yes, exactly. Yep. Um, one of the imp- most important parts, I think of, of Deuteronomy, Jesus references this is the Shema, mm-hmm. or apparently as people from Tennessee say, the Shema. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's an inside uh, joke, people. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, that's... You guys don't know that we talk for about 20 minutes before we hit record, and there's usually some good jokes that, that come on. So we should we should have a blooper reel or, or something. Right. So tell us about the Shema. What does this word mean? Because it sounds kind of funny. And why is it so important? Uh, Shema is uh, Hebrew for hear. Um, and uh, you see the Shema in Deuteronomy 6, verse 5, where it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Um, in fact, do you have Deuteronomy 6 do, yeah. open? You do you want to read? Uh, why don't you read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9? You got it. Hear, O Israel, 
the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Yes. And so, I mean, it would be hard to overstate this little passage mm-hmm. for the book of Deuteronomy. It's almost like the whole of the Old Testament is flowing into it. Yeah. And then after they get it, as they're to live in the land, the whole Old Testament and even much of Jesus' ministry is is flowing from it. Um, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Um, and so uh, God's people are, are being commanded to love and obey him with all that they are um, in response to his grace. Um, and the other thing that I think that you've got to think about when you read Deuteronomy is that God is not an abstraction. Mm. He wants to go with them. He wants them to be reminded of who he is, to teach their children about the deeds of the Lord, um, and to expect him to continue to be at work in their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the other interesting thing about the Shema in that passage you read is um, our kids don't learn by osmosis. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they've got to be taught. They've got to see um, the Lord working in our hearts and lives. Um, we have got to give testimony to how he's at work and how we've experienced his love and grace and forgiveness. Um, and when it talks about binding God's commands to the doorposts and wearing them as jewelry on our bodies, um, we can do that very practically today um, by putting Bible verses of encouragement or God's promises on our mirror, um, on our phones, um, reminding one another of God's promises as we engage with each other. And so um, there's some very practical um, applications that we can draw from, from that Deuteronomy 6, uh, verses 4 through 9 passage. Um, and so, yeah, yeah. Um, Some other theological themes that you find in Deuteronomy is God's faithful to establish his covenant with multiple generations, um, which we are beneficiaries of Mm -hmm. even sitting here tonight in 21st century San Antonio. Um, And then you also see obedience to the law as a joy and privilege. It's not a burden. Mm -hmm. Time and time again in Deuteronomy, Moses says, do this and you will live. Do this and you'll experience life as it was meant to be lived. You'll experience wholeheartedness. You'll experience flourishing in the land. Um, God's law is not meant to press you down. It's meant to liberate you so that you experience uh, this world in in ways that he intends. Um, And then lastly, I guess we could end, unless you've got more, um, that the land that the Lord is giving to Israel is in fulfillment to the promises um, to the patriarchs. Mm -hmm. Um, and so, like you've mentioned already tonight, I mean, Israel did all they could to forfeit yeah. this uh, back in numbers. And uh, But God is, is true to his promises, despite how horrible and depraved his people are. He's going to continue to care for them and give them the good land that he promised to give them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the only other thing that I'll add to this is is there's a, a scene kind of at the, the end of Deuteronomy, where Moses basically says, when you come into the land, go to these two mountains. Certain, I think certain tribes go to one mountain, certain tribes go to another one. And from one mountain, they proclaim the blessings of the covenant, uh, basically everything that will happen if Israel follows the law. And then on, on uh, the other mountain, they proclaim the curses of the covenant, like this is everything that's going to happen to you if you forsake the Lord. 
Um, I just thought it was always a great scene because one, I, I think also you find this, this will be a good segue for us as we get into the conquest narrative. Cause I think you see this kind of actually happen at one point. Um, I think it's just a great way of, it kind of symbolizes how they're going into the land and then sort of <clears throat> proclaiming the covenant um, almost as though they were asking the mountains to bear witness, mm-hmm. so to speak, and the land to sort of testify to the the validity of the covenant between them and God, which makes it all all the worse when, as a setup theocracy, um, Israel and especially Israel's kings continue to mm-hmm. practice idolatry and rebel against God. Yeah. So that's just it's it's kind of a uh, I don't know. You probably won't find a lot of books written about it, but yep. just always a scene I found particularly interesting. And the thing it makes me think about is the importance of ritual. Mm. If you had laid eyes on that ceremony that was happening on those two mountains the blessings repeated yep. and the curses repeated, you likely would not have forgotten that very yeah. quickly. Yeah. Um, and so just the idea of ceremony and ritual being important um, to how we um, engage God's word. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay. Well, we'll, we'll close it out there. This will wrap up the Pentateuch. And so we'll um, pick up again next week as we start talking about Israel's conquest of the land of Canaan. Guys, we appreciate you tuning in. As always, if you have questions about the Bible, those would be so beneficial to us as we go through this Bible series. It will really kind of steer the conversation on particular sections of the Bible. We'd love to get those. You can send those questions to questions at trinitygracesa.org. You can email them to that address, or you can text those questions anonymously to the to the number you'll find on the back of your Sunday morning bulletin. Guys, this has been TGC Midweek. We appreciate you tuning in. Until next time. We'll see you later.